Yeah, let's do it. There it goes. Is it like contagious? No, no, I belched. I mean, belched? I belched. Belched? Belched Belched feels like a sailor. Do not Google how to say belched. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were saying belched with like an eye. What's that? that That's what it sounded like. I don't know. That sounds like a sailor word, though. I belched. (laughs) (laughs) I scurvy and belch. (laughs) Arg. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji Taha. And I am Luther the Birdweb Hughes. This week, we're airing the Zoom conversation we had with the amazing Jane Wong back at the end of 2020 about food, framings, and frontiers. Our signature drink for this episode is the wildfire season, an old-fashioned made with Palo Santo bitters and a singed orange rind. Jane Wong is the author of Overpour from Action Books and How to Not Be Afraid of Everything from Alice James Books, available for pre-order right now. A Kuniman Fellow, she is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and fellowships and residencies from the U.S. Fulbright Program, Artist Trust, Four Culture, the Fine Arts Work Center, Bread Loaf, Hedgebrook, and more. She holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Iowa and a PhD in English from the University of Washington and is an associate professor of creative writing at Western Washington University. But before we head on over to that conversation, Gastronomique Giuseppe asks, (laughs) if you had to pick three poetic forms to serve as a three-course meal, which would you choose and why? No one asks this question. Giuseppe. No one asks this. Oh, Giuseppe. You are just wild. <laughs> I don't know my answer to all of them, to all meals yet, but I think the hustle would be great for an appetizer for the oh. table. Oh, like a shared uh, Because you know how the, okay. the, the couplets can like be by themselves. So I'm thinking like someone that. could take pieces of the couplet for themselves. And there's like a rhyming thing happening. So yes. everyone gets everyone's like getting a little like uh-huh. the same, the same amount mm-hmm. basically of the that. same thing, but in like slightly different order. That's yes. brilliant, actually. I, I, I hadn't that. thought of that. I was like, okay, the haiku has an amuse bouche. That's obvious. But um, yours is so much better. Shout out to Giuseppe. <laughs> I am Giuseppe. <laughs> <laughs> What else, though? I kind of like the idea of a pantoum for an appetizer also, Mm. because it's sort of like, uh, you know, that repetition sort of feels like, chef, I've prepared for you uh, bell peppers in three ways. Mm. I like that. That's so true. Or I'm seeing things on like those sort of spinning serving Mm -hmm. trays and it's just kind of going around. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Okay. So we're on to the entree. Unless we're getting a salad. I like ballad feels like too easy. A for ballad for, yeah. the for the entree. It's, it's like, like a full story. Right. It's, and like everybody, it's like sort of a universal thing. Mm-hmm. Like we're all sort of sharing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just definitely a centerpiece type of poetic form. I like the sonnet as an entree. Just thinking of like the idea. It's of how a little entrees, though. Are you not hungry? But Small it's like, plates. But, it's, but, it's, but it's so complex too. It's complex and everything goes together. A sonnet together. crown is tapas. <laughs> oh, a sonnet crown. There it is. Uh, that's like you're having a dinner party as a son and crumb. That's like that. a potluck. <laughs> okay, re- relax. Third, a cento third is sonnet, a relax. Third sonnet. Yeah. The cento would be the potluck. Ooh, <gasps> That's facts. That's, That's a fact. Wonderful. I love that genius. Yes. For those who don't know what a cento is, do you want to tell them? Uh, that's uh, you borrow lines from other poems. Um, so it's just a poem made up of lines from other 
Poets. It's literally a potluck. It's a potluck. It's literally a potluck. Of a poem. poem. Everyone, everyone brings something. That's right. I love that. I keep wanting to say Sestina just because it's like thick and whatever, but thick yes, and moist. but a lot of people. <laughs> is it not thick and moist? <laughs> it's, We're the worst. Sestina is literally thick and moist. Come on. We all see it. But also people kind of hate them a lot of the time and I don't want to serve something for people a main hate. course that a lot of people are going to hate. And the reason people tend to hate them is just because there's so much repetition built into the form. It's really hard to pull off um, and feel fresh and surprising and interesting. Poets have done it. Poets do pull it off, but it's very difficult. And so the vast majority of sonnets are trash. Sonnets? I mean, oh God. Sestinas. <laughs> Here we go. Hot takes. <laughs> um, Tell us how you I really misspoke. feel, Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> misspoke. I mean, honestly, the vast majority of sonnets are probably trash too, but... Oh. Oh. Sestina is definitely not, not you, John Dunn, for hearing us from above. <laughs> You're great. You're doing yeah, great. Not, that was not directed at John Dunn <laughs> in particular in any way. Okay. So to so move on to the dessert. <gasps> I forgot about dessert. How yeah. dare I? What is the dessert of poetry? Oh my God. That's as a, a form. As a form. <sighs> Honestly, I kind of thought haiku would be a really mm. good dessert, mm-hmm. but I think that you're probably right that it is a better amuse-bouche. Okay. Am I saying that correctly? I don't know. <laughs> um, sure. I can Google it for you. Plot twist. I uh, kind of like an abecedarian. <gasps> Talk about it. Talk it out. It feels like they're sort of like, uh, you know, you've had your meal and mm-hmm. now it's time to sort of like go on a journey mm. that like ends. You know, there's mm. like a clear sort a of final. path and like which sort of summarizes what you've just done. Um, but like the there's like a neat order to it that just feels like tidying up the meal you've just had. Also pretty like fun and yes, it's like like playful playful. and inventive. Like it's like hard to take an abecedarian too seriously. Yeah. And like Mm. desserts should not be taken too seriously. Mm. Like every very serious dessert I've had is like, I like, you could have just put like ice cream on it, you know, <laughs> like just chill. Like, <laughs> But also it's going to be fairly long, you know, yeah. like you've got to save room for this dessert. If I it's like, be I love, I love a substantive dessert. There you go. I don't want to just that works. Bite. Okay. I'm going to buy that. I'm good with that. I'm secretly out of forms too, so. <laughs> Can't think of because, another form. Because anything, I'll probably be like, yeah, of course. Yeah. And it's playful, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's playful. It's playful. What are other forms? Um, um, there is a Jericho <laughs> Brown's form. The duplex. Um, the duplex. There is also um, the villanelle. The villanelle. There is uh, the uh, petrakucha. Oh. Um, high boon. High boon. There is the burning high boon. Um, That's right. So the Arabic. The Arab. Oh, yeah, the Arabic. Shout out to Marwa Halal. Um, there is the Gigan, which people don't talk about. The what? The Gigan. Tell us what that is. Um, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it is takes his riff off of the sonnet, like most forms do. Um, and it's 16 lines and it also repeats certain lines and certain, um, I think it repeats certain lines and or number of syllables. One of the, one of the other or both. Um, it's pretty, the guy is also like a monster from Godzilla. So it's like thinking of like a Godzilla form. Whoa. Did Paul Tran invent this form? No, uh, Ruth Ellen Coker did. Um, but, but Paul Tran also I think has a form. Has something that's And so does Justin Philip Reed too, also has a form too. Um, wow. So many people, so many forms. <sighs> I'm going to say dessert is a nunce form. Oh. Which is when you invent your own form. Because hey. I'm serving a like love that. build your own dessert bar. I, I, oh, I love, love that. that. <laughs> that's one. Yeah, that's definitely where I want to eat. 
<laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I think we nailed that. Um, let's go talk to Jane. <laughs> I love Jane. Jane. A palate cleanser, if you will. Well, we would actually really love it if you would start us off with a poem. Sure. Would you mind reading the last poem in your new book? Yeah. After preparing the altar? Sure. Let me pull it up. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was just thinking to myself, um, I've read this poem so many times, and I feel like every single time I, I always think to myself, like, I feel like simultaneously hungry and disgusted at the same time. I'm always like, this is some nasty like durian and stuff. So um, I should also say I had like hot pot at like 1030 last night because I went to H Mart, but I was like, this is for the holidays. But then I was like, no, I must have it now. And um, I'm like feeling like the, like the hot pot sweats. The like, sweats. Day. I haven't eaten yet because I, it, it was, uh, I mean, I ate until midnight. So I feel a little crazy right now. Anyway, okay. <laughs> sure okay here it goes after preparing the altar the ghosts feast feverishly it starts with an epigraph from the incredible audrey lord which is how hard it is to sleep in the middle of a life we wake in the middle of a life hungry we smear durian along our mouths, sing soft death a lullaby, carcass breath, eros of licked fingers and the finest perfume. What is love if not rot? We wear the fruits hull as a spiked crown, grinning in green armor, death to the grub, fat in his milky shuffle, death to the lawlessness of dirt, death to mud and its false chocolate. To the bloated sun, we want to slice open and yoke all over the village. We want a sun-drenched slug feast, an omelet loosening its folds like hot jello. We want the marbled fat of steak and all its swirling pink galaxies. We want the drool, the gnash, the pluck of each corn kernel raw and summer swell. Tears welling up oil, order up pickled cucumbers piled like logs for a fire, like fat limbs we pepper and succulent in. Order up shrimp chips curling in a porcelain bowl like subway seats, grapes peeled from bitter bark, almost translucent, like eyes we would rather see. Little girl, what do you leave leaven in your sight? Death to the open eyes of the dying here. There are so many open eyes, we can't close each one. No, we did not say the steamed eye of a fish. No eyelids fluttering like no butterfly wings. No purple yam lips, we said eyes. Still and resolute as a heartbreaker. Does this break your heart? Look, we don't wanna be rude, but seconds please. Want globes of oranges swallowed whole like a basketball or Mars or whatever planet is the most delicious. Slather Saturn, ferment Mercury, lap up its film of dust. Seconds, thirds, fourths, meat wool, a bouquet of chicken feet, a garden of melons monstrous in their bulge, prune back nothing. We purr in this garden. We comb through berries and come out so blue. Little girl, lasso tofu, the rope slicing its belly clean. 
deep fry a cloud so it tastes like bitter gourd or your father leaving the exhaust of his car charred. Serenade a snake and slither its tongue into yours and bite. Love, what is love if not knotted in garlic? Child, we move through graves like eels, delicious with our heads first, our mouths agape. Our teeth, little needles to stitch a factory of everything made in China. You ask, are you hungry? Hunger eats through the air like ozone. You ask, what does it mean to be rootless? Roots are good to use as toothpicks. You, how can you wake in the middle of a life? We shut and open our eyes like the sun shining on tossed pennies in a forgotten well. Bald, copper, blood, yu choy bolts into roses down here. While you were sleeping, we woke to the old leaves of your backyard shed and ate that and one of your lost flip-flops too. In a future life, we saw rats overtake a supermarket with so much milk, we turned opaque. We wake to something boiling. We wake to wash dirt from lettuce to blossom into your face, aphids along the lashes. Little girl, don't forget to take care of the chickens squawking in their mess and stench. Did our mouths buckle at the sight of you devouring slice after slice of pizza in the greasy box? to does this frontier swoon for you it's time to wake up wake the tapeworm who loves his home wake the ants let them do -si do a spoonful of peanut butter tell us little girl are you hungry awake astonished enough thank you so much um so a line that sticks out to me in this poem is what is love if not knotted in garlic which is the line i love um and so this book is obsessed with food and how it um how it works with family with country with home and all these other things it's almost as if food is the reason why the book was created although of course there are many other reasons for this book i think too of cooking and how creating something from ingredients can be tied to how we create poems so my question is one do you cook and if you do cook, do you see any similarities between your cooking and your writing? Wow, that's a fantastic question. And thank you so much for that, Luther. Um, you know, it's funny, I grew up in a, a restaurant. So um, I grew up in a really shitty Chinese American takeout restaurant where we didn't actually eat the food that we um, sold. But, um, you know, growing up in a restaurant, growing up with people who in my family were like chefs and cooks and um, front of house, etc. I was never really allowed to cook or kind of like my mom always told me, um, get out of the kitchen, like you're supposed to study and go to school and read all these books and, and do something else with your life. Um, and I'm a, you know, a first generation college graduate, etc. And so it was a big deal for me to kind of um, not cook actually, which is like really hard because all I wanted to do was, was cook. Um, I will say that that's not actually true because I also had to do chores, <laughs> AKA free labor of like folding wontons. <laughs> just like, I just couldn't do the fun stuff of le learning how to cook it. I was just like, okay, just like cut these wonton strips um, and do these like menial tasks. So uh, yeah, I actually do cook. And it's funny because, you know, during these times, like, during COVID and, you know, this quarantine, I have learned to cook. And, you know, I'm 36. And it's like, 
been a kind of a long time where I was just like, you know, eating out like all the time or having people cook for me. And it's the first time I've ever really started to cook. So yeah, I do cook and it's, it feels really comforting right now. And I love your question and thinking about it in relationship to poetry, because I haven't been writing poems during this time at all. And I'm always like, what, what is, what is going on that I can't put down words on, on paper. I'm struggling a lot. And I think for a lot of people writing right now is a kind of, uh, I don't know, a healing act, but it hasn't necessarily, you know, been working for me, but I have been cooking. And so uh, like a lot, like I mentioned, I had hot, I was making the hot pot at like 1030 last night. Um, and just like, you know, chopping all the, the vegetables for it. And I was like, this is kind of a poem. Absolutely. In fact, I was just like, this is a better poem than I could ever write. <laughs> it's to cook for myself. And I think that there's, it's so tied together for me, like food and poetry and sustenance and, and something that feels nurturing. And so right now I totally think, you know, making something like chasu bao or something like that is, is so nurturing. Um, and, you know, I, I had this one poem called The Long Labors, and it's a very long poem, but um, I've always wanted to kind of do something fun with that poem in the sense of it being off the page. And so just recently at uh, UW Bothell's Convergence on Poetics, I actually cooked that poem. Like I, I cut out words from rice paper um, and then I folded them into pork chive dumplings and then I cooked them and ate them like during my performance of reading that poem. And I was just like, oh, I finally did it. Like I finally ate my poem. Wow. Yeah, I can send you some pictures, but it's just, I just, it was so fun. It was, it was great to kind of do that um, and delicious too. So that's amazing. It was hard too. Cause like, if you cut the words out of rice paper, um, you have to be very delicate because they can tear apart. Um, but I just really liked folding, you know, the the kind of letters into the, the dumpling. And I was reading the poem um, while making them, like making the wontons or dumplings. And it was weird for me because like, I'm not a multitasker. And so my it was really hard to read the poem while making dumplings, but then that actually wasn't because it's muscle memory. Like I, that was my one chore, like the huge chore besides like the worst was actually cleaning that like, like goop from the shrimp. You talking about like the poop vein or whatever they call it. Like, what is that? Anyway, I just, that's like one of my things I did at the restaurant was like clean the poop vein or whatever it's called onto like a, uh, like a white paper towel. Like that was damp. I just remember it's all that goop on that towel anyway, but I folded wontons all day, all the time. And so for me, it was like just folding them, reading, folding, reading. It was cool. It was like a reminder of like, you know, uh, like this is, this is in my body actually. Yeah. And thinking of like poems as offerings, it's like a whole different like kind of offering. Um, well, switching gears a little bit, I am interested in uh, the different ways your first and second books are framed. Um, to me, in reading uh, and rereading your first book, there are a lot of similarities and obsessions you return to across them. Animals, food, fear, family, just to name a few. But it strikes me that in your first book, Overpour, you use uh, your mother's life as sort of a framing device with the poems written in her voice at various years of her life. 
um, which permit a more inward gaze, literally allowing the speaker, your mother, to say your name, Jane. Whereas your second book is framed by a larger, more distant history. Right in the middle of the book is the long poem, When You Died, what you notice about your Chinese grandfather who survived the Great Leap Forward, which claimed 36 million lives due to starvation, which reaches for like an almost unthinkable scale of human catastrophe, like, like it's beyond one human's like sort of possible comprehension to really understand what that means. And the grief that obviously sort of accompanies that. So I guess I'm curious for you and sort of returning to those obsessions in this different framework, like what you learned about yourself, your relationship to these obsessions as they were sort of framed in these like dramatically different orders of magnitude. Wow, that was, um, that was so beautiful, Gigi. Thank you for that. I, uh, I love that, that word obsessions. I feel like, you know, we all have our obsessions and in many ways, as poets, um, you know, we can't escape them. They just, it's just like, they're always there. Um, you know, I'm, I love, I'm obsessed with ghosts and kind of like, you know, ancestral, I don't know what to call it, um, connections in these ways, this kind of, um, I don't know. And I feel that way, like I couldn't, you know, in overport, like I had to write these poems in my mother's voice and think about her, everything in my life you know, returns, returns to her. Um, and I'm, I'm even right now in, in having this podcast with you, I'm thinking of her right now at the, the post office, she's a postal worker and it's the holiday rush, it's COVID and it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy at the post office right now. And she won't have a day off until Christmas day. Um, and I don't know the last time she had a day off, but anyway, um, yeah, I'm always thinking of her and in thinking of her, like I have to think of her own kind of you know, family and her own lineage and my grandparents. And she's very close, um, you know, with my my grandpa. Um, and it's very strange. I mean, he has passed, but I still think of him in the present, like tense. Like I, I can't, it's hard for me to think of him not here um, because he is in many ways. But yeah, it's like a distant, but not distant past, right? This is like just one generation prior. And I think so much of my obsession with um, trying to understand these things that are almost kind of like, like I mentioned before, like in my body is to look back at that. So like growing up, I was always kind of like full of like this, I don't know, gluttonous energy, like, um, like I'm just like constantly eating like always and there was something where it's like my my nickname as a baby was bao bao and I was mentioning chasu bao but it's like bun bun like pork bun like just giant cheeks and so much of my growing up was like around like feeding me and to the point which sometimes I feel like like it's like too much <laughs> but then a lot of that came from a history of starvation. And I didn't know that, like, I didn't know that. And I still don't really, no one talks about it. This is something that is really difficult in my family and like hunger and, you know, no one talks about it. And so I kind of have to listen very closely to the stories that my family tells, like my mother saying that she was like joking when I was like dating a vegetarian once. And she was like, oh, I was vegetarian. And I was like, uh. <laughs> I mean, she was vegetarian because, you know, she couldn't afford meat or like even an egg was a special thing um, when she was growing up. But then I had to go further back to look at the Great Leap Forward and what it means to know that my grandfather was, you know, orphaned and adopted by someone else who lost his family and kind of had to put the pieces together in the timeline. You're like, oh, you know, thinking about these silences. And so 
You know, I've always been obsessed with food. I think I've always been obsessed with um, trying to find this kind of connection to my, my, my history because it keeps feeling like it's slipping away from me. And I mm. feel like I'm always trying to grab it back. Um, you know, so much of the, the second book is like digging deeper into labor, into kind of um, what it means to kind of grow up in a certain way where you kind of have to make do. And also how troubling that is to me now as a professor and that now that I've made it, whatever the hell that means, um, and I use big words or like have doctor in front of my name or what, whatever the hell, like I'm so troubled. I'm so troubled uh, by, you know, what what happens when when that eventually occurs and then so much of it so much of it's still in my body like I can't throw away like there's like cilantro rotting in my fridge right now and I feel like shameful that I haven't used it but I can't throw it away even though I'm like it can be composted but I'm just like oh if I just wash it enough to shake off the slime I definitely use the stems because why do these people throw away these stems? That's messed up. I'm <laughs> just like, it'd be great in a sauce. So I, I don't know if this is a way to answer your question or if it's just kind of a, a hot, like hot pot soup of an answer. But I, yeah, I feel like I can't help but, but kind of keep coming back to my mom as the central space of where all this kind of moves outward. Um, and yeah, going back to what Luther was saying, it's also tied to food. That's also a huge obsession of mine. Um, I dream one day to be a food critic. That's like another kind of pathway one day, but not in the way that we think of food critics as like, oh, elevated, blah, blah, blah. No, no, I, I, I'm dreaming up something else for that part of my life. <laughs> I hate that word, by the way. I just hate the word elevated. Like to elevate, just to elevate. Oh, this is like elevated, like um, shrimp dumpling. I'm like, oh my God. Like, cause you put truffle in it, it's nasty. <laughs> right. Oh my god, that's so true. The word "elevated" almost always goes with like truffle oil. <laughs> like, let me elevate this, but mm. <laughs> oh, it's oh. terrible. It's terrible. I have deep feelings about like these. You know, there's. I think there's a poem in the book. Maybe it's from the frontier, where um, one of my very favorite childhood dishes, um, you know, <laughs> showed up in the New York Times uh, as a recipe. I was pissed. I was pissed. I was like, if a white person tries to make this dish, I'm going to just, just lose it. <laughs> just Because it's not a dish that's in restaurants. Like it's, it's like a comfort home style. Your mom, your grandma, your like, you know, grandpa makes this dish. Like it's, it's just, it's a very simple tomato um, based dish. But I saw the New York Times and I was so mad. So sorry. Now I'm just starting to trash. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll never be a food critic. Like I'm just like trashing already on the New York Times like food um, column. Okay. <laughs> you have a wonderful TED talk which people can watch online, where you talk about what you call a poetics of haunting, and you describe that in the context of your work as not being about the past coming back to haunt you, but rather an intentional act of going towards the ghosts and writing into the silences around their histories. And I love how you frame this as an active rather than a passive process. 
because until I listened to your talk, I tended to think of haunting as something that happens to me, like something that drives me to the page and compels me to write. But I love how your definition gives the writer more agency and also opens them to more accountability. And when I think of the actions behind this sort of poetics, I think primarily of research and imagination as the sort of like duality of actions. I'm wondering how those two modes interact in your process, however you see that. Yeah, I love that, Gabby. Thanks also for uh, reminding me of that <laughs> very awkward day I did that TED talk. Um, I was terrified when I when I did that. I think mostly because, um, you know, I, I was just so. I mean, I'm still kind of terrified. And like, you know, how, what does my family think about all of this too? Um, and I don't necessarily even have an answer for that. Um, but I, you know, I'm thinking about haunting and thinking about ghosts. Like I mentioned, um, yeah, I think that most people think of it as something that's like. Um, almost like bothering you or kind of like can't shake it off or something. And for me, it's like you were saying, this kind of active role, it feels almost like, you know, joyful. I think that, you know, I, I love my ghosts. I think they have my back. I think that, you know, thinking about that kind of like ancestral, like badassery of like, you know, we've survived so much, like you're going to, you're going to be okay. Um, and I think that, part of that is me going towards them, like speaking to them, like um, thinking about them all the time. And I think that, you know, especially when you have hard histories in your past, especially ones that no one wants to talk about, um, it's it's really hard because there's something that's missing and you kind of want to go towards it. And, you know, if it's missing, like why not fill it with flowers, like fill it with something that is going to, to blossom and make you better understand like why the way you are right, in the next generation. And so with the Great Leap Forward in particular, that's that's really hard too, because it's a history that is, um, you know, lacks research, right? There's not much research on it because, you know, censorship, I mean, it's, it's pretty, um, you know, pretty blunt. A lot of the books that are on the Great Leap Forward, you know, are, are, are banned in China and it's really hard to get your hands on like um, personal accounts of what, is, what has happened. Um, and sometimes there are these more kind of historical, political kind of looking at it from, from far away um, and looking at kind of industrial reform and, you know, Maoist politics versus like the, the, the lived experiences of, of that time period. Um, and, you know, I think that for me, I, and there's a little bit, I, I gathered whatever I could, I think in like whatever little books that I could find, but again, there's not much um, on it. And it's been interesting too, as I've been sharing these poems um, with, with people, um, so many people from, you know, other Chinese, Chinese American poets, writers have reached out to me and are just like, you know, I haven't ever, thought to dig into this and are, are kind of like, I started to kind of think through my own family's kind of like experience during that time or right right after the cultural revolution. And so it's it's been a kind of like a really terrifying, but like eye-opening experience in the sense of like, I can only, I guess I can only write about this with a deep sense of like, like, uh, like I'm trying to to bridge that gap or to say something to, you know, the family members that I, I lost during that time. And so, yeah, that central poem 
in the second book, When You Died, is, is you know, mostly direct address to, to them and wanting to kind of like reach across. Um, and so this goes back to like deep listening. I think that those, those poems are that way of haunting is like, I just listen closely um, to whatever they're trying to tell me, but also, you know, what my grandpa told me, what my mom told me about kind of, you know, uh, how much she, she loves yams. Like there's just, you know, my family is just like, they love yams. It's like, and, but then if you think about it, it's just like, I mean, yams are the like, easiest thing to grow it's just like the simplest thing is to have like a yam with with nothing else and it's just you know to listen closely and imagine like how do we like fall in love with our favorite foods like what does that say about one's social economic kind of like um history or lineage or you know what was available then where and how does one adapt now that one is away from that and now it's just like whenever we eat, it's like so much meat, almost like too much meat because it's like trying to like, because there was only vegetables before if there were vegetables. And so it's just been, a, um, yeah. So I don't know. I feel like the word research is, is um, feels so far away from me. Like it's so like exterior where I always want to bring research closer like to me. But I, I also want to respect like my family and I would never, I, and I have not tried to have a conversation directly because I feel like it is painful and it's trauma. And I, I don't want to, to kind of, I don't know, create that upheaval, um, that, 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 that grief. And so instead I'm just listening, I'm just like taking that step back is my type of approach to all of this. Um, but it's, it's a little scary. I mean, I don't, again, like, I don't think there's many poets writing about this. And so it's a little, um, nerve wracking because I'm like, oh, geez, like, I don't know what this may mean for me <laughs> um, in terms of just like how my family feels about it. But um, but more broadly, too, um, hopefully this this kind of opens up a history that people don't know much about. Can you read another poem for us, please? And the poem is Unkindly Kind. Oh, thank you. That's a, you know, I was always like curious, like, what are y'all gonna choose? Um, <laughs> this one, let me find it. I, uh, I literally wrote this because I was in, the, the book is like also in addition to thinking through my family and, you know, the things that I'm afraid of and hard histories and, you know, silenced histories. That's also about heartbreak and being pissed off at like, you know, why do all these terrible things happen to me romantically continually over and over and over again? And so this poem, I was like in my like, um, the, the kind of like hot hell of like heartbreak and kind of frustration, like giving up on dating, etc. And I saw this caterpillar, this like really beautiful caterpillar stuck on my wall um, window uh, when I was at a writing residency at um, Willapa Bay and I was like oh, this is such a handsome caterpillar I started falling in love with it so that's what this poem kind of started off with was just like talking to the caterpillar um, but it begins with a, a quote from John Donne which is um, when thou weepest unkindly kind my life's blood doth decay unkindly kind a caterpillar clings to my window, its little trailing feet sucked against the glass. How lucky I am to be this admired. How I've waited years to be clung to, even temporarily. Stay a while, I plead. Its red furred head peels up 
as if listening for danger. Not done, I touch the glass, press my finger to its swaying undertow. The wind flares in absolutes, combing a chill across its too soft body, which turns away from me like every man I've slept with slowly and surely. Maybe by morning I could collect enough of so-and-so's breath to sustain me for the coming months of so many ghost arms. Unkindly kind to love that which does not love me back. Fresh out of lack, I flop like a goldfish on my bed, sorrow stung with so little honey. I break open a claw of aloe vera and smear it all over my body, toes and all. I shine out like this, stupidly green. I spit into a cup and spit again to let myself know there's still so much within me. My heart, a slickened thing. In my solitude, I listen to the song of the dryers spinning warmth. The caterpillar turns back on the glass, inches closer, romanced by the lute of the linen. Oh dear, oh decay, this is what it has come to, making a metaphor out of nothing again. I must be lifted out of this, helicoptered to someplace better, quick. My mother calls me in this pink pulse of heartache, reminds me that the river only rises in one direction. I don't know what you mean, I say, tell me what you mean. But then she roars so loudly, I have no choice but to join the racket and wrestle out my lungs. This is not where I thought I'd be roaring in a room where something is about to heal. So something I admire greatly about this book is the way you use figurative language and more specifically metaphor. The way it's used really prepares each poem forward in a pleasurable way. It brings a freshness to the book overall. And I really do mean freshness in the very sense of the word. And I find the line in the poem you just read about metaphor very striking and that line being, that is what it has come to, making metaphor out of nothing again. I find it striking because each metaphor, in fact, is not made out of nothing, as you have said in this line, but made from any and everything. So can you talk a little more about your usage of metaphor and how you see metaphor working in your day-to-day -day life? Ooh, metaphor question. Oh, I love that. I know, I kind of, that line is kind of like, you're right, kind of ridiculous. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's such a poet thing. I remember like a, when I was a little kid, like I believed that everything around me had a symbolic meaning or some other reason as to why I was seeing it um, and that I could see it transformed. I think the cool thing about a metaphor is that it, it makes you travel. It makes you move somewhere else to see something even even clearer, which is bizarre. Cause like, you know, if you think about the parts of a metaphor, the tenor and the vehicle, like you can go so far, like in terms of like how you want to kind of like get us there. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. I was so dramatic. I was such an emo child. Like I'd see like, you know, like, I don't know, like a, I would see like a little like ladybug that was like toppled over and it's like little legs kicking. Um, and I'm just like staring at it. I'm just like, oh my God something's telling me that that's my father right now. Like, you know, just like, I'm just, you know, what is up with that? It's so dramatic, um, you know, or like, you know, I remember walking down like Capitol Hill once and there was just like a giant, it was like raining, it was like pouring. There was like pools of water in the grass. And I saw a full, like fully like, you know, 
it wasn't even used like a paper towel, like giant roll of paper towels. And it was just stopping in the like muck and someone had just like left it there. And I was just like, oh, this is how my heart feels right now. It's just like soaking in all the like sad mud juice of like my like heartache. And I was just like, this is so dramatic. I don't know. <laughs> I, I know it's ridiculous, but I love metaphor. I love images. I'm obsessed with images. I love synesthesia. I feel like everything around me is swirling at all times when I write a poem. I just love the ability to kind of um, take a closer look at, you know, that which is trying to tell us something and extend it to, I love kind of like taking it sometimes as far as it can go or even further. Um, but I've always, I've always loved images. I think of, of all the poet things. Um, I just love metaphor. I love images. I think there's just something where, uh, you know, like I want to, I want to like taste something. I want to feel it like in like burning my eyes. Like I just always want it to be this kind of thing that feels like it's not static. Like metaphors move, like they move us emotionally, but also they move, they literally move um, our, our concept of something. Um, so far it becomes transformative. Like, um, so yeah, thank you for that question. I feel like I, yeah, I'm really obsessed with, with images. And I think that there's something too about the natural world that um, is so bizarre already. That's the thing is like, um, you know, I brought into one of my poetry classes back when I used to teach at UW. Um, I brought an egg to class and I was passing this egg around, um, which made the vegans kind of mad. <laughs> I realized that because a few students dropped my class after that. <laughs> but anyway, I passed this egg around and was just like, you know, hold it. How does it feel? Is it cold? Do you smell it? Whatnot. And I remember cracking it open and we just like stare at it and just like, look, this egg is amazing to begin with. Like as a just a tangible thing, this thing that could have become something else, like an, a creature. How beautiful is an egg? But poetry, like you can make that even more than what it is. It's already extraordinary. But like, if you wrote, wrote a poem about an egg for like 10 pages, look how extraordinary that egg is. Like that is what poetry can do. And, you know, an egg is already cool. So I just thought it was funny that like students dropped that class though. Cause I was like, I think, come on. Like, you know, what kind of, I mean, if, if one of my professors cracked an egg in front of me I'd be like, I'm here. <laughs> Now I use vegetables whenever I teach that lesson. Um, just FYI, I use, yeah. So all my students now at Western, et cetera, we've done cabbages, sweet potatoes, onions, bananas, you name it, the yam, speaking of like yams. Um, yeah, now we do, now we go for veggies. Do you slice it like with a knife? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually my Zoom, my last kind of poetry class I taught, it was a cabbage. And that was hard because they need to, see. so I sliced that cabbage and you could, I just tore it apart. Like just like, it's like flying in the air. And it's just like, just imagine it. Just like, do you know that sounds like when you slice that cabbage, when you tear it apart? Oh, it's so great. Um, yeah. And I always, I always like, I always tell my students too, like in person when I would bring in some, like a vegetable, like a, a yam, I'm like, don't do, don't do too many like things to this. Yeah. I'm like, don't scratch at it. Cause I'm going to eat it. Like, don't, like, you know, just like be gentle with it. Cause I'm just gonna, I'm going to eat it. I'm not going to waste it either. So um, no, I love that. Yes. The sound of the cabbage. Mm. 
and wow, yeah, how a cabbage looks when you like cut it in half, that like ant farmy marbled, like mm. very intricate design work on it is always very stunning to me. I love, see, look, ant farm. <laughs> Metaphor. <laughs> insects, oh my gosh, so many insects in your new book, which I love. Um, but okay, my actual question. Um, <laughs> Uh, in your poem, Lessons on Lessening, the speaker names some lessons she's learned. You write in that poem, I was taught that everything and everyone is self-made, that you can make a window out of anything if you want. I've been thinking a lot lately about how what we're taught as young people shapes us and how poetry can provide an arena for examining those early lessons, wrestling with them, maybe even undoing some of their hold on our living and our thinking. And I've also been thinking a lot lately about lines from season two guest, Aria Aber's book, Hard Damage, where she says, we are what we are taught, yes, but also what we hope for. When you think about this new book of yours, How to Not Be Afraid of Everything, which even the title frames as a kind of instruction manual or lesson, uh, what do you feel are the central or most recurring teachings you're wrestling with? Mm, I love that. I love also the shout out to Aria too. Um, yes, amazing poet. I think that there's something about our younger selves that I find so powerful. Like they, they're kind of wiser than we are now, which is weird because you think that wisdom grows as you grow older. But in fact, I think back to, you know, when I was younger and the kind of lessons that um, I taught myself, I think at that time. And I think that poem and in so many other, the poems in the, the second book too, really return to that kind of younger self with um, that hope of like, um, I don't know, kind of being being more centered in my own kind of like capacity and my own resilience and my own power. I think a lot of the book is also about power and, um, you know, being afraid of being powerless and being afraid of the world being about power. And like, how do I gain agency, especially thinking back to my younger self, you know, there is at the end of one of the poems, um, which is called Everything, um, which I was like, oh gosh, like if I have a book called How to Not Be Afraid of Everything, I have to write the everything. Um, and I think that the end of that poem ends with like my younger self, like staring at a rock hard enough to kind of have it fall over. And I think that that was kind of what I did when I was young is that I thought I was powerful actually at some point. And I thought that like, you know, like telepathy, like I was just like, if I just like stare at somebody long enough, they will know what I'm talking about. Or like, I can, you know, like, or just like, oh my gosh, this, this boy that used to throw rocks at me and just like, if I just stare at him, maybe the rock will just kind of like flip back and like hit him in the head or something like that. Just like, I don't know. Like I was just so full of like, I don't know, power, I think at a certain age until it starts slowly leaking away from you or being taken away from you, um, you know, and thinking about all these these institutions too. In that poem, it's also kind of thinks through English and language and kind of the ways in which like, you know, my mom in that in that poem gets a, a, a like a check from night school and English school. And so I give her a check plus, like there's just something very kind of like, you know, like a child doing that, you know, like grading, like your, your mother's like English homework at night school and having the power to do that. 
So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like my younger self is um, brilliant. I love little baby Jane. I wonder, I wish I could talk to her and, you know, hang out with her. Um, you know, also another incredible poet in Seattle, um, Naakua. Um, they recently had a workshop on like mirror and its reflections. And during one of those sessions, Na asked me to look into the mirror and talk to baby Jane. And I was like, what? And so it was really weird to, to look in my eyes and think to myself, like, these are the eyes I had as baby Jane. They haven't grown that much, actually. The eyes like don't grow as much as the rest of us um, in terms of like how large they get. Um, but I was like, oh my gosh, what was baby Jane like telling me? And it, it was just so magical, I feel like. Um, baby Jane was really telling me to kind of, you know, be, be more gentle with myself. And like, I think we all kind of need to kind of think through kind of um, the ways in which, you know, our, our younger selves maybe, uh, I don't know, um, swaddled themselves like more kind of closely. And I, I feel that way. Like, I just want to take care of myself because baby Jane told me to do so. <laughs> That's great. Jane, I really love the three poems in your new book that share the title, The Frontier. Um, the, particularly the one that starts with the lines, uh, what ends in this country simply does not, onward and onward and so forth. I keep returning to these lines because your book uh, has so much space in it. Um, the first poem has almost 40 blank spaces. The second poem has these really large stanza breaks. The third is a three column, two line contrapuntal where each line phrase is like no more than five words. Let's see, there are poems with lots of sejuras, et cetera, et cetera. But I also keep thinking about the line in the, uh, in the same frontier poem, our rights inalienable or alien always, and your heavy use of fragments uh, and inversions throughout the book, which both uh, formally sort of force the reader to stop and pause and consider like what they have just read, um, which illuminates for me all of the different ways you create borders with, uh, within your poems and across section breaks in the book as well. So all of that's just kind of like a really long way <laughs> to ask you like how you're thinking about um, in your new book, uh, Space, uh, and then like how space and distance are working and then what sort of is behind the impulse for you to set up barriers and boundaries for your readers to sort of like encounter and then cross. I, oh my gosh, that question like did so many like formal gymnastics. I loved that. I was like, whoa, oh, word. Right. Like, the like, grad school <laughs> just uh, yeah. jumped out. <laughs> just, hi. Like, ah! like, okay. <laughs> oh, wow. No, thank you so much. I, I love thinking through uh, space. And I, I think that, you know, oftentimes we all, we think of space as this kind of uh, space of, of silence or something that's just kind of empty or whatever. And I, I always tend to think of it as something that's like so full, like that the space is very kind of like um, vibrational or like resonant. And so even thinking about kind of um, that, the poem you mentioned at the very start of the kind of book, Mad, which is kind of like Mad Libs. Um, and it's a poem about anger. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm pissed off, you know, like through a lot of the book too. And it's just like, it's interesting too, because I think about like, you know, stereotypes of Asian American women being quiet and like, um, you know, submissive or kind of just like, lets things pass. And I am like, I am an angry person. <laughs> like I have a lot of deep anger. And, um, and I don't think a lot of people kind of 
like assume that of me. And so in that poem, there's just so much anger and I'm so mad. But then it's like these mad libs, these empty spaces, there are places where you can't help but fill in, you know what's gonna go in that space, right? It's not actually as open to whatever you wanna put in that space. I mean, you know, you have you know, blank eyes for uh, Asian, like, and come on, it's just like, it's just like, you know what this is. And so those spaces feel like they're always like so packed to me. Um, and then like, I was thinking about, um, you know, in the poem I read after preparing the altar, the ghost speaks feverishly and there's like spacing in there too, because it's a pretty long, dense poem. Um, and the long labors has that too. But I was thinking that for me, when I was creating the spaces in that poem, I was actually thinking about the line in the poem where the eels are moving um, deliciously. And I was thinking actually the eel like weaving itself through the like spaces of the, um, of the spacing. So it almost felt like I was making room for them to move. And so again, uh, those spaces are full. It's like creating this kind of like um, space in which like things can like live in there and in, in the kind of spacing. Um, yeah, and then, you know, I, I think that, you know, in, in that poem, The Frontier, looking at, actually, I think it was like a reference to Food and Wine magazine, as I was mentioning the kind of, you know, the, you know, these recipes of like, quote, like peasant Chinese food or whatever is the hottest thing in like, you know, ethnic food trends for foodies now or whatever. Um, that there's a space there that just, you know, is empty, like the name of the dish, I don't say it. Um, and then in that poem, I say like, you know, don't look this up, like, don't look that up. I'm not going to give that to you. And that's also very full because it's like, if you, if you know, you know, this is not for you. Like, that's the other thing too, is like, I think of spacing as like, it's going to be different for different readers. And I think that for me, like, um, you know, that, hopefully that that spacing allows some other readers more in than you know than not and so I don't know I, I think about form also as a kind of um you know space of obsession too um you know there is also a poem in the the book that's made of like really sloppy sonnets like a, a kind of lopsided sonnet crown and like the space between each sonnet, I think is is really interesting too, because I think of that as like a space in which it feels like you're trying to find that tethered connection, but then sometimes it falls away from you. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was also thinking about, cause I can't separate poetry from like the rest of like my life and my upbringing. And like, if you were growing up like immigrant, like, to some degree, um, or I would say like, you know, um, you know, low income immigrant, working class immigrant, they're like, somebody's got a hoarding problem. Like, you know, there's like, I mean, there's so much stuff because it's like, why you can't throw it away. Like you have to keep everything. Everything is reused, everything. I think, I think in the poem, The Frontier, it's like the, you know, the drawer with the plastic bags inside the plastic bags inside the plastic bags and just like constant, these knots of plastic bags stuffed everywhere in there or these cookie tins or everything's being reused. Like, you know, I can make this into a vase, why not? Like, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm sorry, that was like a yogurt. I was like, we're, we're on like- Audio. <laughs> audio. <laughs> yeah, no great drink. Um, but, but yeah, I think that there's something to say about the fact that like in writing poetry, I love the opportunity to kind of have 
all this stuff, but also ha- like be able to actually move and create space for myself. Cause I've never really had that growing up because it was like, everything was cramped. Um, you know, I, I grew up actually in Matawan, New Jersey, and I lived in a, um, basically a, a one bedroom, uh, apartment with like, you know, four other uncles. And so, you know, my grandparents and my mom, my dad, and I slept in that, uh, like the kind of like this, like attic loft space. I don't know what to call it exactly, but exposed beams, squirrels running everywhere, just a mattress. And we were always just crammed in, like everything was just crammed in. And like, you know, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting thinking about that in relationship to poetry, like the times in which I write really dense poems, the times I give it like space and even the empty spaces feel dense to me too. So um, yeah, maybe that's a way to kind (laughs) of answer that. Would you mind actually closing us out this part of the conversation with reading mad? Yeah, thank you. Let's do it. Let's see. I think it starts it off. It's funny when you go back to look at a book. I I, I think I finished this book a while ago. It's funny how long it takes to go to, to print too, because I'm always just like, I wrote these poems so, so, so many years ago. Um, yeah, this is mad. Jane, deceived by time and again should not, but she and slept with curled fists, the rat catching a ride on the turtle winds, ugly and coarse, but beware of strangers who, and when you're, and lick the sweat off your nose and false just to taste their own. Do not trust in owls and heads that spin. Heads should not spin nor stink like ammonia in the armpits like a habit of. Do not pause to watch insects like dangling lights. Their soft speckled bodies, a minutia of buzzing dandelion seeds have already you in the neck. Blood on their spindle tongues. This is a metaphor for. There are no wolves in this tale, only handsome with pea green eyes who will tell you, you are as soft as, then they will carefully cut and seek only the smallest kindness of shaking out a pebble from a neighbor's shoe to do unto others what you, did you swallow? Jane called intense, surely head spun, owl struck stating if only she called feisty talks to or talks to, often too smart for Good, I never thought you'd be looking like you have big eyes for a curiously strong or weak. It's just, and it's for the best. Her hair though is the best and is remarkably like kindling and okay for to touch, light and ingest in flame strands by. Ignore when she says, or this is of Jane. Jane rubbed salt all over her body to become a dissolving and thusly, rightfully so, right out of this world. Thank you, Jane, for your delicious generosity. Our talk was, did I already say delicious? Okay, it gave me mouthfeels. Thank you to Jack Straw Cultural Center for our appetizing audio. Oh my God, to our scrumptious <laughs> listeners, aren't you glad to have us in your ears again? We adore you for adoring us for adoring poets. Because you love our 
unctuous faces. Rate us five stars right now. I want you to pause me and rate us right now. I'll wait. I will not wait. And follow us on Twitter then <laughs> at Pod. Send along your favorite local cheese, a picture of bread, and five hours of you eating salami to thepostalonpod at gmail.com. No, I do. Uh, maybe even a soap set. I'll take that. This is a head cheese. I. It what? is a. It is literally just. I. Just a sandwich. Just a cured meat parts. situation. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. It sounds very coated. <laughs> Not. Oh, you meant salami, like. Fetty and spaghetti, fetty and spaghetti.